I'm pushing play. Here we go. You should push record. <laughs> See? I just said I'm going to push play, and that's Elvis said you should push record because he misses nothing. Hey, but see, record is already depressed, and then you hit play, and then, hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Wait, in those old days when we would record on, like, the cassettes, wouldn't you, you would press down record, right, and then play would it come after, and, and then you were recording. It was, play was the engine that moved the, um, if you had, like, an old school tape recorder that only had one motor drive. Yeah. Right, exactly. So that's, I think, why we think. Now, you, um, I'm going to press play because record, you know how it works. Record is already like beeping, uh, vi you know, visually beeping, and then you hit a second time. And in my head, I think, oh, that's like pressing play because we were kids recording off the radio, which basically no one listening can remember. <laughs> radio, recording, listening. What are you talking about? I mean, recording on a separate, <laughs> on an auxiliary device. From the radio, but you and I both, I mean, I, there are a lot of I mean, cassettes. Why wouldn't you just go to Spotify? Why wouldn't you just like, what are you doing? Why couldn't you just play it when you wanted to play it? Why record something off the radio? <laughs> hey, sorry, everybody. Elvis Mitchell is one of my favorite people to talk to. I am really, really excited about this. Elvis is, I would say, even though you don't really write for print anymore, uh, although your movie the, the film that is uh, available now on Netflix, Is That Black Enough for You, is written, very clearly written by you. Uh, it's a documentary, but it's written by you. But to me, you're the premier film critic of my time doing this stuff. You are a polymath. You're one of really- I thought there uh, would be I no think, math. Right. Well, that's, you know what? And unfortunately, you like word games, which let's just end this. Should we end this now? <laughs> okay. Thanks, we, thanks, thanks, for, Elvis, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> but um, Elvis, Elvis, is, <laughs> Elvis is a writer-director. He has also conducted the interviews for a documentary that technically he didn't uh, direct. He has hosted and produced television shows. I mean, this is the problem when you've known someone this long, you know, sort of uh, a lot of stuff. But I will say this is really important, Elvis, as you know, as I told you many times at the beginning of doing this podcast, which I started in 2013, you are one of the two biggest influences in the, in the way I think about conducting conversations. I have always found your style of preparation and inquiry to be incredibly inspiring. You were a North Star for me in the way I wanted to do this. And right when we started, I asked you to do the podcast and you were like, get it going for a while first. And the other day we were talking, I was like, you're finally ready. And you said, I've been waiting. Yes. So thank you for being here, Elvis. I have a lot of gratitude for a lot of different reasons for you, but Wait, who's the other I, don't think I don't think I do the... <laughs> podcast i'll tell you i can tell you it in terms of the interviewing it's howard stern and then the fact of it i'd say the third person was marin because of just the way his podcast was in the beginning but I, not as a, a style right okay elvis elvis's show the treatment on kcrw is is where you can hear that interview style and it's released as a podcast and the podcast has changed over the years but it is still a podcast i listen to every week and i really want to send you to that podcast. I've mentioned it many times on here, but I want to send everybody to it. Elvis, thank you for being here and doing this. As I mentioned to you, I've been waiting for this. And you know, I'm a I have so many questions to ask you about doing this this show. I mean it's it's you know I, I just still think about the interview with Bob Mold, who um 
And I see you smiling as I mentioned that, but I still think about that because I feel the show hit the stripe pretty fast. Um, but the interviews like that, or when you're talking to Rick Rubin, or even when you have Sammy on, it's like when you're surprised by people, I can hear this. I know you well enough to hear that as you sit up in that gasp. <laughs> well, that has to do with the way you listen and participate. And also something I'm going to start with here, which is, and you know, you're going to have to get used to being inner, the person on the other side of this, be because you are so generous of spirit and always inquiring. And there's this line in your movie and your movie is incredibly, it's, it's, I've heard other people talk about, I heard Marin talk to you about it. So is that black enough for you, which is available on Netflix and I heard Mark almost say that reach for the word survey course, and then you almost provided it and decided not to, because it's both a survey and a seminar and a sermon as well, I think, about uh, a lot of things. But there's a line in it that really caught me. Uh, you're talking about uh, a film, uh, a, a female protagonist in a movie, Pam Greer, and, and you say, but often and finally alone, still moving on, hopefully toward community. And I heard that line and I felt like you were talking about Pam Greer, but you were also talking about your place in uh, the world of film and talking about film and this striving toward community from a posture of being an outsider. And I wonder if that resonates for you a little bit. It's great that you picked up on that because it actually that's Toni Morrison talking about Pam Greer. And, and but it certainly is the reason that that, clicked for me hearing her say that because I think if you're a person of color trying to make your apply your trove or make your way through the world of, of art then you certainly feel like that and you do want this sense of community and you do want to feel that you're speaking to people who have an understanding of what it is that you're saying um, but also you feel like there aren't as many people doing it as should be doing it so it's a peculiar kind of I guess loner status, um, but it's, I'm fascinated that you picked up on that. Why was that that click that line click for you, Brian? Well, a few different reasons. And I would also say, even if Toni Morrison said it, you know, the thing is that in making a documentary like that, which is a documentary, but it's a very personal movie. You're talking throughout the whole thing. You wrote you wrote an enormous amount of voiceover. It's narrative, really. It's your book. You know, it's this book that you'd been walking around with for a long time, made manifest with these incredible images and style. And so you chose that out of all the quotes about Pam Greer. You know, you're close friends with Quentin. You didn't pick 12 Quentin quotes. So I felt like it was, uh, and there weren't, and the, the, the film is not festooned with quotes from people um, like that. So commentary, right? Uh, and so I was drawn to it. But the reason is I've been working on a unified theory of Elvis Mitchell. And I have. <laughs> And this the, is the definition on Google of too much free time on your hands. So please proceed. Well, like, so, okay, to me, the string theory at the center seems to be that you have this boundless generosity toward those doing the work in the community for the community and to entertain, enlighten, and inspire the whole. And that you also care about the individual members of that community, maybe mostly those on the fringes who are desperate to be insiders in the center of it. And you're smiling because to me, there's this invitation to do the work necessary to understand the nature of the work and to suggest that like the rewards of that work by themselves are worthy of dedicating a life to no matter the long odds. And to me, it just seems like that's the subtext to kind of unify a lot of what you do. 
And since you do this to all your guests, I thought it's fair to do it to you. So how does that hit you? Um, if I could blush, I would is the first thing I would say to that. Um, so much of this, gosh, I think I've been waiting for this and dreading this conversation. Because <laughs> as you know, I really I can't talk about myself enough. And um, I think, ooh, I'm saying, um, I hate when I do that. Listen, it's hard because... As you know, when you're doing this work, yes. you tend to not give the consideration to it. So much of it is just getting up and 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 you know going out and practicing your free throws. And and if you get good enough, then you're not thinking about it. You know where you're standing. You know where you can hit just from when you pick the ball before you even put it up. You know if you're going to hit or not before you throw it. And a lot, I think a lot of this. Nobody's put that question to me because nobody's ever asked me that kind of thing before. Is just trying to have some command of the mechanics of doing this, and I can say I never set out to do this. Um, it's just that I would watch interviews or read them. I mean, th one of the big things for me was just what the Playboy interview seemed to be. And 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 I've gotten to meet Larry Grobel and talk to him about that Brando interview, which to me is still kind of the ne plus ultra of this thing, where it's conversation, where it's challenge, where you can see it's even though the questions get edited, having gone through that, that cycle myself, you can see how much of Larry Grobel there was in that conversation. And I just thought, how do you do this? How do you get somebody to look at you when you're talking to them? In effect, that's what you want. Um, and, 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 and I know, you know, this too, that a good part of this is just treating it as if it's a professional, no, as not as if a professional endeavor, your job is not to be friends with somebody. It's just to get that person to recognize that you're talking to them as you're talking to them. Yes. And from a technique standpoint, I, that's all true, but I guess the thing is that when, when, like you said, challenge, which is a great word, Elvis because you said challenge, not gotcha. And I, when I think about all of the ways in which you interact with filmed media, television, uh, music, the way in which you challenge, I think, is toward bringing out a greater understanding of the resonances behind this artwork. And, I, and, and that's a choice because you have people in spots where you could definitely do the other thing. And so I kind of am interested in that choice, that choice to use this to foster a greater whole. Just, you know, and I know that's something you're aware of, even if, as you say, you start out not aware. If I look at the body of your work. Let me ask you, because you do this now, how aware of you going into it? Because the thing I know that you do, and I can hear it, because I know you well enough, is you are prone to letting the conversation go where it's going to go. And, and that's something I actually learned being interviewed like years ago. I remember sitting with some somebody who was presumably a friend and who I knew. And it was a, actually an interview on KCRW. And he was he asked me to come in. I said, great. And this is when I was just getting started. I was writing and doing stuff for NPR. And he had a list of 20 questions in front of him. And he would ask a question and it would sort of turn into a conversation. He'd go, <laughs> that's great. Oh, yeah. And go right well, back to the list. Well, I've always been fascinated by the fact that you don't even have the questions down because you've just done the work and you're letting, I like to have them and then feel free not to get at them. 
But I, I also will say that this curiosity that you have, well, I just would like you to speak a little bit just for one more time, because your whole movie, look, uh, you know, one watches this movie and, and this movie rewards a lot of thinking about because right from the beginning, you know, you do this great thing of talking about what a certain direct, it's great. You, you first of all, show us the way these directors, actors, everyone involved in black cinema at this certain time, the way they had to present themselves, the presentational aspect of the way they had to dress, the way they had to talk, the way they had to walk. And sometimes you don't comment on it. A few times you whisper things that are very crucial because you're letting us do it. Uh, you're letting us un un under understand it. But where the movie goes isn't a place of you going and you see the white movies that came later stole this shit. You very clearly show how Saturday Night Fever embraced ideas, filmic, film grammar ideas and tone and style but toward an understanding, I think, of this unity that would be possible if we could get outside of ourselves. And I think that's what I'm curious about, Elvis, because you could approach this from so many different standpoints. Why do you think you're drawn toward an idea of this coming together, a synthesis, as opposed to um, a kind of detaching and a kind of drawing harsh distinctions? Gosh, Brian, I feel like you should be asking these questions of yourself because these are the kinds of things that you do and you've really come to do on, on, on this show because part of it is just pulling these things apart. And and I made a joke about Eminem during the Saturday Night Fever thing because there's not that big a distance between, for me, John Badham and Eminem and Rick Rubin being, or rather the John Badham of music in that way and seeing that you can bring these things together rather than separating them. And I would even say that this gosh, there's so much to, to, to talk about here because part of the reason I wanted to make this movie, and this is something you know because we talked about it, is this stuff has never been said before. Uh, yes. it's the, the the complete ignoring of the impact that black culture had on the mainstream, and we it only gets noticed when it's subsumed and and then by the practitioner of the person who subsumed it rather than the immediate the 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 immediate impact that it had. And um the practitioner, it's important to say to the audience, the practitioner, not the end use, not the viewer. The practitioner, right? That's important. That's really you're by John Badham, not by me sitting at 13 in the theater watching that movie, right? Yeah, yeah, but you saw it, and it's this thing where when I saw Saturday Night Fever and I sort of cracked that joke, it's like everybody in the audience kind of knew, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> of course it's a shaft. And you don't see it in any single, like nobody mentions this. And part of the reason I wanted to do what I do is I just felt like, why is nobody saying this? This movie came out of a conversation in a lot of ways that I had with the Hughes brothers when they were still working together when I met them at Sundance in 99. And I, we were just talking at this event and I said, um, that talk started talking about dead presidents and how much I love that trailer because it uses walk on by by as a case. And I said, I've always thought that thing, that piece of music was stolen. And Albert says, and we say it in unison from Ennio Morricone's piece, right. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in the West. And I remember reading in the Rolling Stone book of reviews, somebody making fun of the lugubrious walk on by. And you go, no, that's, how do you miss this? How do you not get this? The, the guitar tuning, tuning is exactly the same. How do you not even hear that? And 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 so 
because, and it's not just talking about how the impact of jazz, because that's when something people often turn to, or the impact that hip hop, which now that it's 50 years old, is finally being acknowledged. But to talk about Isaac Hayes hearing that, and I got to ask him this, unfortunately, not on my show, but he passed away. I said, did you do that? He goes, oh, my God, we were 13. He said, I like to think that we were eight no shy of being actionable. And that he said that he told me that he and David Porter go with the air conditioning or go out of stacks and they go across the street and watch once upon a time in the West. And so it sank in. And so, of course, they were going to do that. And his first record, it failed. So we're thinking, how do you do something bigger? And but, you know, I mean, there's so much stuff that got cut out of the movie. Because I, I, You go from that to the Brothers Johnson version of Come Together, which is clearly also influenced by Morricone. It's the same guitar tuning. It's, just, it's an overture before it even starts. I'd even said to Gordon to Quinn, I said, why don't you put Come Together by the Brothers Johnson and Django? He goes, that becomes a whole other conversation about his thing about the Beatles and whatever. But he goes, huh. And I played it for him in, in the car. He goes, oh, oh. So. And so those moments of those those moments of a dawning realization, when you're able to communicate to somebody something that they hadn't put together before, you still get a huge and and it like it wakes them up, right? And it's oh, a shared on, thing. What, you on, still love I can that see shit, the look right? On your face, it wakes you up too. It's in the writing. It's in those characters. It's, it's billions. People are trading information and they'll lighten somebody's eye with somebody has a piece of information that somebody else doesn't have. It's this right. thing that you do. It's 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 the narration in Rounders, for God's sake, Brian. So these characters that you guys do are all the, the biggest treasure they have. And the most important thing they have is that ability to suss out information nobody else has and to have it first. I mean, that's for acts, that's as much currency as actual currency is. But again, not to do the Elvis Mitchell thing to you, but again, but you use that, I believe you use that information, okay? This is something I wrote down and I think it's true and I have never heard anyone say it to you. But I think like, because I've thought a lot about this interview, th this thing that you do, which is you come up with a thesis. It's not even, you don't even come up with it. You're walking around with it. I know you're, it's not like you're um, trying to come up with a thesis. No, you just have this thesis. You articulate it to your guest. You do this in the movie too. You'll, you know, the way you show something and point it out, you do it on your interview show as, as well. You know, when you, the, the television show that, that you had on uh, a, a TCM. But to me, like I was thinking about this James Cameron thing and I was thinking about like, if Cameron's right, and I think he is right, humans have this need to be seen for who they really are. And that communicating that to somebody that you see them is really important. And it seems to me that you put huge effort into finding a way to truly see what artists are trying to show you, but this is the real thing that you do. It seems like you try and look through the creator's eyes, like, so that they have the rare chance to actually see themselves and that you're giving them this gift of letting them see themselves finally as they're seen by, let's say, the collective audience, but through this prism you've worked to, to develop. And I know that part's intentional, Elvis. You've done it for too long and too directly. You like this moment of actually giving this gift to people of let me tell you who you are and that you're seen and let them for a moment, a blink, see themselves as they're seen by a great viewer. And so I have to ask you, how in how you came to that message? 
I, I would. That's a very elegant way of putting it, and I can I can't thank you enough for giving it this much consideration. But I, and you actually made me think of something when I had a, I did a Q and A with, with Cameron once. Part yeah. of it is for me, it's to let people know that I've given this thought because yes. you know that so many people. I mean, I've been one of the reasons I don't like being interviewed is I don't want to have somebody talk to me who clearly hasn't done the work. Yes. At one point, I was being interviewed by somebody who was asking me about the um, the interview magazine piece I'd done with Joaquin Phoenix, where he got himself in trouble because people intentionally misquoted what he was saying about the Oscars. He wasn't saying about the Oscars. He was talking about the the process of having the campaign for it. And this guy brought the quote. I goes, well, you know, he actually said something really interesting uh, talking about um, a movie that he turned down because it was clearly a racist movie. And do you want to talk about that? And the guy goes, what are you talking about? That He says that in the interview magazine piece. The guy goes, well, I didn't read the piece. And I go, it's not a 20,000-word New Yorker piece on potato farming. It's a 2,000-word interview magazine Q&A. It's not that hard to do. I'm not asking you to suss out my entire career. But you can, if you're going to talk about that piece, you can have read the piece. And so as often as not, what I want people to understand is I take them seriously. I may not be serious in the way that I conduct interviews because I want it's important to get people to laugh, I think, or make it feel as conversation as possible. But I want you to know that I've given this thought that that this is not going to be some kind of glad handing or something. I, I want you to know that I've thought about this before I walked into this room. Um, yes. When I first sat down with Cameron, I said to him, because you the thing about being seen, I said, everything you've done is about somebody trying to get home. He just went. Right. <laughs> but that's, you want people to understand that you've given this some thought and you know how that works because as soon as you offer the considerate the, the fact that you've given this some consideration and you may be wrong i've certainly been wrong as often as not but that you've given it some thought i think people respond to because again you're not you're not trying to be pals with these people you just want them to know that for the half hour or 35 minutes they're sitting with you that you've thought about this before you walk in and you know the fun of it is doing it without having notes because if you have notes people are looking trying to look at the notes to see what's on the notes and and also i want to make eye contact and yes. i'm glad we're doing this being able to see each other because for the last three years 60 percent of the stuff i've done has been by zoom and because we're, we're public radio we <laughs> we don't want to interfere with the audio integrity by having a visual of it because there are enough things that can go wrong as it is so I don't get to see people as much anymore. And before the pandemic, I can name the five interviews I did that the people were in the room for. For that 20 years, there were five of them because it's important to me to be in the room. Yes. One was with me, but it was okay because we had we were fr- we'd spent so we much time together yeah, in our yeah, lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, they're all with people I knew. I would never do – before that, I would never do um, – um, a Zoom or a satellite interview back in those days with somebody I didn't know. Me neither until the me neither until the pandemic. I and then Rick. Just so you, this is a great Rick Rubin thing. You know, Rick was the one. So I was doing it the Terry Gross thing where I thought, okay, well, video quality. So I was just doing it listening, and I spoke to Rick on the phone about doing the pod, and he was a big time listener. He's always listened to the moment and very great about it to me. And he said, "Let me ask you a question." Do you think it's better or worse? And if you hear, if we see each other, and I, I was like, 
I think probably he goes because don't you think part of what you do and I and I realized he was producing he was yeah. doing the Rick Rubin thing to me and he made that was it I'm like from then on I only will do it with the with the visual too because I'm not Terry Gross it works better for me if I can look at the person and but that's a different thing I've seen in, but I've been at NPR and I've seen how that works and that's that's an entirely different process for her and she doesn't want to be in the room with people but there's also people giving her notes and that kind of stuff and I just I want to be able to see the people. Did you want to create, but I have a, okay, so hearing what you just said though about wanting, this is really insightful. And again, it comes back to this influence you had on me as an interviewer, Elvis, which is that everybody, people who hate my podcast know that I do the work. Um, and that is because, you know, you did the, it was so clear to me that what made this was your brain, but then that you would fill your brain by doing the work. But I wonder if part of it is, we've talked about this a lot, and this is in your, this comes up in your creative work, which is, You've at times suffered from people misapprehending these things about you, the, um, whether it's outsider status because, and you're smiling now because it's true and we've had many conversations about it. And so I wonder if part of this gift you give people and part of this preparation is because you want to show up and say, I'm doing my best to actually understand you, ma'am or sir, because I've had people show up so many times, not just with microphones, but in more damning ways and uh, not do the work to understand me, but make suppositions based upon my hair, that I'm a black man, where I'm from. So is that accurate? You're smiling and nodding, so I imagine it is. Well, there's certainly something subtextual to that, um, but there's also something subtextual too where you want to be, listen, I mean, if you're a person of color, there are still perceptions that people have about you. And I had this conversation with Toni Morrison when I was being damned in the press for not having seen the movie. Uh, when people, Ann Thompson and Nikki Fink, I'll say this here, made up stories about me that they got from the director who was unhappy about a review of, of his movie I wrote. And um, and as you know, because you called me and said, listen, I know that you were, 99% of the time they could, I would have been in trouble because most of the time you go see movies to review by yourself. I just happened to be the Bill Hader and you knew that. And he called you and they even asked you, why I didn't say something. I thought, A, it wasn't his fight. And B, if you read those pieces, you're looking at the subtext, there's clearly so much anger and animosity towards me in those pieces because the only example that could come up with of me not having done the work was that one. I'm not going to argue with that, but I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I didn't know Nikki at all. I certainly can't say that Ann, whether that Ann Thompson is, you know, I, uh, I haven't interacted with her in that way. She's only been very nice to me and sort of reasonable. But that said, that said, no, um, the way that I would interpret, so what happened was, and you've never talked about this before, and I'm, I'm glad that we're bring you brought it up because I think it's really worth discussing. The way I would look at that is you watched a movie and then to do your work thoroughly actually went and read the script because you do more work. And anyone who's ever listened to you or watched you knows you are nothing if not thorough. You are a professor. But before you were even a professor, you were a professor. And so the, they damn you for picking a detail out from the script as though reading a script is easier than watching a fucking movie. And uh, which, of course, it's, it's not. So, yeah, why didn't? And then, you know, you didn't speak out, really. And I, I had my own sort of understanding of, of why that might be. But I do well, remember what that. Wasn't it, I'd like to hear that understanding. Since we we're airing this out, what was that? You weren't going to dignify it. Like if that's their I actually, judgment I absolutely, of you. I clearly wasn't. 
that was exactly what I was going to do. So I even had a couple of lawyer friends or one, a pretty high power lawyer friend in Detroit said, you know, you can sue because there's obviously animosity here. None of this is based on fact. And he based all the things we're talking about. He said to me, these pieces, none of, there's no other example except for this of your lifelong career being a liar. So there's clearly some personal animosity here. I thought, well, there's actually something Tony actually said to me, Tony Morrison, which actually made me, because it's weird when I met her, she said, well, why didn't you call me when you quit the Times? And I said, because I didn't think you knew who I was. And she said, it's the New York. I said, Tony, there are filmmakers who read the New York Times who don't know I'm there. Why would I presume that you did? And as this is all happening, she said, well, it's, it's the unfortunate effect of, the, of Jason Blair. It now becomes that much easier to blame a Black person. And, to, and, and she said, it's something she had dealt with her entire career, that you're always looked upon as being in some way or another, you understand their assumptions that are made about you. And we talked about hair because <laughs> we kind of had similar hair. She goes, well, I know you do this for the reason I do it because you're not trying to hide who you are. Right. And it, it's in plain sight. And she said, the people, she said, imagine if you could do that kind of stuff. And this is really sweet of her. You could like write a review of a movie like that that you hadn't seen. Imagine if you could do the kind of interviews you do without doing the research. I mean, they would really be threatened by you if you actually could pull this kind of thing off. Well, yeah, of course. And I, I, but I, I want you to explain why you didn't really go in a really direct, loud way. Like I say, I interpret it as, as this, as like, look, I have this body of work. I am nothing if not a worker. I am nothing if not someone who thinks about cinema deeply and who has shown my respect for cinema because the reason you were my favorite film writer back then and, you know, you and I met on an airplane because I asked somebody to introduce us. And then you invited me to sit next to you because I made a, I, I had a- Yes, you came a, back from, third class, from first class to sit with me. And I, I did. Really well, they were, fly, they, were, they were flying, uh, they were flying us in first class. It was a film thing. But, but uh, I asked Doug McGrath, the late and really one of the great guys who died last year. And just a beautiful man, Doug McGrath. I love Doug. And he, he's he was greatest. a beautiful man. And I said, that's Elvis Mitchell. Would you- introduced me to him and he said, I will. And he brought me back to you. And I was wearing a Shinola watch that you noticed, I think, or something like that. And then, which is not an expensive. Frank, it was a Frank Muller. It was not, but it wasn't, no, it, was, it wasn't a Frank. I, mean, I believe that you'll, whatever you say, and I only wear, uh, I'm not a watch person. So you are. And then I remember making some kind of joke and you were like, oh, okay, cool. Now you can sit and you invited me to sit next to you. And we ended up talking for like the whole flight. But I, and, and the thing I always said about you as a, as a, as a critic, was that even when you were critical of, the, of someone's work, I felt you always endeavored first to understand what the filmmaker was trying to do, what they thought they were doing, that you started from that place. And from there, you could either, you could make a choice to deconstruct it, to say that they didn't reach it, to point out that strength. Of, but it's a separator to me um, this ability, and then this, not just ability to do it, but this determination. Okay, I'm going to apprehend the artist's intent, what they, and actually what they think they did. Then I'm going to talk about it. And I always felt that was um, a very generous way to do this. And I wonder if that's something that you learned, or that's something you just, when you start in college writing about movies, you just did. I, I think about so much, so many of the people I read, uh, Kenneth Tynan or Pauline Kael or Ralph Ellison's essays on jazz, which I've always thought were so beautiful 
um, that you had to read them several times because the language was so gorgeous that you couldn't, that it, it took that much time to understand what it was he wanted to do. And I just, you've been very kind of using the word generosity. I think I've always wanted to try to offer that, understand how much work it takes to do something. And this is only yes. something I knew in the abstract before I started to do it, that nobody sets out to make something bad. And the fact is you people were pretty hard. And, and, and I always wanted to try to communicate that I understood the effort. And I just say this funny because for some weird reason, Michael Mann thought I didn't like him because um, this Miami Vice piece I wrote when I was writing stuff for Rolling Stone, um, you know, back in the days when they really didn't understand black people as compared to now. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. um, and, and he changed his mind about me when he read my Ali review, which, you know, I thought that was kind of a movie that has problems. I understood where he was coming from. And in fact, and I thought, it was a really fascinating thing to start off a movie about Muhammad Ali without him speaking and to use that Sam Cooke song and that performance from Live at the Harlem Club, which was not the Sam Cooke that everybody knew, but the Sam Cooke that Black audiences knew. to sort of prove, and I thought there's an understanding there that came from an abiding respect for Black culture. Um, and in fact, he was somebody I wanted to try to get from my movie because I'm sure he's seen Sweetback and and that has informed his sensibility in some foundational way, uh, and and I think that he has this this clearly abiding admiration for black culture that you can hear right in that version of um, Turning Point that's in Thief that's not the original but the cover by Mighty Joe Young that's much harder and bluesier, uh, and there are choices like that that really have always made you want to talk to him about black culture. Well, you know, you See, El, uh, the movies, Elvis. No, no, El, the, the movies don't inform uh, how I make my movies, Elvis. It's the hard streets that I grew up on. I don't. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah, what I, kind I, of I bullshit that. is oh, that? Yeah, I, I don't that. Yeah, watch. It's not from the movies. But uh, I have a good. I'll tell you as soon as we're. I have one thing I can't say on the air that you'll love. You told me um, a few of these. I wonder if there's some left. Anyway, this is one that's but, not my story. This is a, someone else told me this the other day, and you'll love it. Um, but wait, I have two things to say about this. One, yes. I remember that getting that Sam Cooke album when I was 13 years old um, because my dad loved Sam Cooke, but he loved studio Sam Cooke. And somehow I was in a record store when that thing came out and there was that, um, I don't know if it was a liner note or it was about that whole thing about the circuit and about where Sam was singing and about which audiences liked which version of Sam. And I read it over and over and over again. And I listened to that album endlessly. And it, it was a very important album for me as a kid. And I'm so glad you brought that record up because people don't understand to this day what Sam Cooke really had the capacity to do. And it reminds me of the Belafonte thing, which is, but Sam made this other choice, meaning Sam made the choice that Belafonte didn't make. He made more of the Poitier choice from your, from your I, movie. No, I think it's a little more complex than that, just because- Yes, I'm sure it is. Tell he, me. He could actually go out and play a club. It didn't. He need, didn't need the mechanics and budgets yeah, yeah. of a studio, so he could go and play a black club. Because it's funny if you listen to this is something I used to do when that record came out. If I knew somebody, there's somebody I want to expose to Sam Cooke, I would give them a copy of Live at the Copa and Live at the Harlem Club, awesome. <clears throat> so you could hear the difference. Harry could go and do the kind of thing in music just because it wasn't the same kind of expense, and he didn't have to go through the thing of a having a studio finance it, b having a studio give him notes. And then see having exhibitors tell him, because 
the 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 real and this is something I ended up being cut out of the movie, but would have been in the book if it hadn't been turned down by every English speaking publisher in North America. Can't was fathom. just that this the real power in movie studios has always been the people who run uh, exhibition and distribution. They're the ones who will tell production people, "I can't have a black man kissing a white woman in the movie because it's not going to play. This is not the '50s, so you just cut that thing out. That's the plot. I can't show it." I can't get people to pick it up. Whether that was true or not, these people who ran distribution in the studios still would say that. And so studios, I mean, I've talked to any number of Black actors who talked about choices they've made or things that were taken out of movies or things that were taken out of scripts or any number of really successful Black actors who will talk about that kind of thing. And 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 so because Harry made this incredible choice to not do those movies – and I don't think we can say the world is a better place if those movies didn't exist because we, we needed to see that kind of choice being made by a Black actor who, by virtue of being a star by himself in these movies, and there's something else Harry talks about. I couldn't be the only Black person in the movie unless it was the end of the world. And then he talks about a movie that he helped to produce that they, all the sexual stuff was taken out of. I mean, there's so much to get into with this because... Inger Stevens ended up committing suicide because she was afraid her marriage to a black man would get out. And, 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 and that guy worked with Harry. And Harry also knew Bill Gunn, who uh, basically had to deal with his sexuality and trying to keep that closeted and, and the kind of pain that, that caused him. And Harry just said, I'm not going to hide any part about myself because I've seen too many good people I know suffer by having to keep parts of themselves away from the public. So rather than make these movies where only my disdain would show for the characters, I'm not going to do it. And again, Harry will tell you that first and foremost, he was an actor. He trained as an actor. If you hear those songs, you've ever seen him on stage, there's an actor's deportment. There's an actor's understanding. If you ever see him enter, well, if you've ever seen him enter a room, uh, which if you've ever seen that, when you saw, I saw that guy enter a bunch of rooms. If you've seen, what what is it? Um, Isn't it the We Are the World documentary that when he walks in the room, all those stars turn to him and suddenly this is a real thing because Harry's in the room. They start clapping, I think. I think they all applaud when he walks in the room. I'm pretty sure that that's in the, I'm not, I didn't go back and I'm watch I'm taking that, this on faith because I've never sure. seen the documentary, but uh, I know I've, I've been in rooms. I was at the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award at Sydney Poitier. I worked on that. And when Harry walked in the room, every head turned. I'll every, show it to you. I'm almost sure. They all start singing. I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive that they all then start singing. I'll, I'll go look for it and I'll, and if I, I'll leave this in the podcast if I'm I'm wrong, but I'll 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 send it to you um, afterwards. But no, Elvis, please, a couple, I'd love couple, to see that. couple things. I don't want to jump off the other thing because it's important. And what I was saying about Sam was though Sam, um, as opposed to certain people who make the choice that they're only they're not going to compromise the sort of the working from the most alive part of themselves. Sam did also have a commercial. He did make the choice, the more Sidney Poitier choice, perhaps to. Uh, not give up doing the, that work, but he also was willing to do the work that was the commercial work. Uh, he did both, right? And well, he got um, to be both Sydney and Harry. He got to do he did that a more because- anodyne version of himself. He presented a more anodyne version of himself in the in in the music, musically anodyne. I'm saying than the other version, right? But there are performers who saw him, and you can see that Otis Redding saw Sam Cooke on stage. With a black audience, yes, and is using both of those versions, and it basically is is, is the crashing those two together.
So you, I've noticed that you bring up very often, I do too, actually, but you bring up Ellison a lot. You know, to me, and it's weird because the book, it's one of these things that when a piece of art, still in its time, we're still in its time, becomes a trope, it's sometimes, the, it's hard for people to approach it in a fresh way. And that's, I think, why that book, I, uh, but to me, and I wanted to say, I'm so glad you brought it up because Invisible Man, there's this passage in it that I try to tell every writer I ever meet, every young writer, if they want to understand how to uh, write about, people always talk about the way that Dave and I write about food and stuff, but the way that he writes about the yams and the carts, it is one of the, the single greatest pieces of writing I've ever read in my life. And it is, right? And it is, it is um, as a young person reading it, I remember just thinking, well, this is as good as writing can be. He's, I smell what he's smelling. I understand the desire of it. I understand the, it, it, through a discussion about this yam, you understand everything going on in the world in New York and that character's heart in that moment. And, and it's a, a magnificent, but he did codify this idea of invisibility. And I wonder if one of the reasons you talk about him a lot, because he, in a way, has become invisible because the book became a trope. He only wrote the one other thing and then yes, criticism, that criticism. But isn't that story about you being in that movie and then people not seeing all this other work to sort of make them at least call you and ask you the question or do a little bit of research. Isn't that a form of invisibility? Um, absolutely. It's completely that. And it's because first of all, when you mentioned that, I'm so thrilled that you brought that up because when I saw that book as a kid, I had never read a writer with that kind of power Yeah, referring to something I knew. It was something that was part of my life. I knew what yams were. I knew what he wrote about that food. I knew that that was, I mean, and certainly that was so profoundly affecting to me to have read that. And and I, God, I was telling somebody about this once. The feeling of uh, almost like the feeling apparently that Anatole, Anatole Boyard had in Paris reading Chester Himes, and and think, oh, I'm not alone, even yes. though he was again. This is yes, somebody else who, had, yes. who made himself invisible. Because he couldn't, he couldn't be who he was. He was afraid of being who he was at the New York Times. That was certainly. I mean, I have to tell you, that's something I mentioned to you before, if you remember it. But Gerald Boyd, who was assistant managing editor, who was the highest at that point ranked black person at the Times, when I was coming in, and he, one of the first people to talk to me, said, "Listen, this is going to be a hard job for you because you're a high flying black man, and um, you can live one way before you come into this place. When you come here." you're going to be judged in a very different way and you should be ready for that. And he was the only person who warned me about that. And, and it was important to have that perspective. And he said, you're going to trust me. This is going to be hard. It's going to be much harder than you think because there's nobody who's had a job like this who was a person of color before. And trust me, you're going to get people who are going to, you're going to start getting letters. And I would, I wish I kept some of the letters I used to get, but this is something I actually learned from Paul and Kale. I responded to every single one. And almost every time, like the almost, in 90% of the cases, it'd be this kind of, oh, apology, or I'm back to your point about what Cameron was saying about wanting to be seen and heard. It was once you respond to that, because it's this thing you learned if you're in a newspaper, people will pick it up and read it. You're responsible to the reader. So I would respond to the readers. But I do think that there is absolutely, um, this is just, 
interesting to talk about just because it's not something I get asked. And, and but something certainly in the way I lead my life to be unapologetic about who and where I am. And, yes. and, and, um, but also to understand that, that people are going to judge me. I, I, friends would send me these responses to those pieces uh, about my, those pieces that were made up about me not having seen the movie. And they'd be stuff in there like comeuppance or, yeah, like, what was I getting comeuppance? From? What did I do to deserve a comeuppance? And, or this person who was ethically challenged. It's like, well, to your point, I'm sorry, I can't not do the research if I'm going to, and I'm sure, I've, and I've heard this with you. Isn't it shocking how people are surprised when they show, an author show up and you've read the book? They're always surprised. Amy went on. Amy went on a very famous book podcast on NPR uh, when her first novel came out. My wife and uh, you mean your wife, the director? <laughs> yes, my wife, the writer, director, novelist. But when who was on your show, of course. But I'm saying I know you know her, but for the audience and uh, the, uh, but I, I would say she was so excited because with a book, you know, with like a novel, like nobody wants to talk to you with a novel. And she was going on the book show that mattered so much to her as a listener. And she sat across and it was so clear that he hadn't read the book and it was crushing. And so when I got into this, I decided like, I will never have somebody on if I haven't read the book. I will, I will delay it. I will punt. I will tell them I can't do it. I will not do it, man. You can't do it. It's not okay. Now, luckily, no, no, like you, you can't. Unfortunately, you can. You don't. I wouldn't. And the fun of it is when somebody kind of goes, you read the book? <laughs> I, I'll never forget when I was, I, one of the first TV things I did was 30 years ago. Uh, there's a show, CBS Nightwatch, and I got to fill in after the host had left. And um, <laughs> the author of A Clear and Present Danger. <laughs> yes. Mr. Clancy? Yes, came on. And we started talking. He just goes, I just came from Larry King. Larry King. You could hear the crack of the spine from the book being opened for the first time. <laughs> well, now, Larry right. King never claimed to have read a book, but and and I still have the book somewhere. He wrote in the frontispiece. The entire front two pages were him writing about how thrilled he was as somebody he had done at that point during that week thirty interviews, and nobody but, had read the book. But but isn't your isn't your movie and isn't a lot of what you do about? I think it ties right into the thing from the beginning. And you brought up Ellison. This was not something I'd prepared to talk about. Like, first of all, a few things to say. One, so this is amazing, right? You're growing up where you're growing up and how you're growing up and with eight siblings. And I'm growing up the way I'm growing up on like the fucking North Shore of Long Island, right? And we both interact with this passage. And for you, it's something you knew in your bones and it made you feel seen and not invisible. And for me, it made me know oh, people feel about this thing that I don't know anything about a certain way that I recognize that feeling. I recognize the need. I recognize um, the comfort of the, what the comfort that a smell from home can give you. And if, if you, you know, there's a reason you and I became friends when we did. And it's because of all, this is what happens, right? Meaning we find these things and if we use these things the right way, they're ladders. And these ladders go to the same place on some level, I think. And and so, yeah, we're both in such different situations, listening to Live at the Harlem Square Club and reading um, Ellison 
and um, both, you know, listening to the greatest musical artist ever, Bob Dylan. That's very true. I mean, and you Bob just, Dylan, we're, we're listening well, to Dylan that, together. I will uh, and- <laughs> just, I actually thought of you, um, uh, thought about something when I was listening, God, was it this, a few months ago, when you were talking to Sorkin and you brought the, the Pat Hobby stories. And I ended up bringing up Fitzgerald's short stories a lot too, because in fact, I interviewed Tony Bourdain, I brought the, the Pat Hobby stories. Oh, that's great. He collected his collection of, uh, of short fiction. And because uh, I'd love, but again, I mean, I, I cannot imagine that's your purview where you grew up. And and having read that and that sense of being outside and about being judged by for appearance and the heartbreak of being judged by appearance, but also not having the equipment or not wanting to dignify that that belittling or or that vituperation or that anger and being able to identify with that. Yes. So, right. Well, Pat Hobby had to swallow so much and also was swallowing. So, you know, it was, I mean, there are so many layers, right? The guy's a drunk. I mean, there's so many layers. The guy writing it's a drunk, all that stuff. And, but he also has to swallow these indignities and these businesses, how anything attended to show business is filled with indignities all the time. And I think more so, the more sort of outsider things you have until you get all the way in. I mean, you can read Ben Hecht if you want to really under, not one can read Ben Hecht. Um, and one should read Ben Hecht to really understand that it's, perpetuated and perpetuated. And heck is, I'm going to write this down. I didn't know yeah, please name. do. You should know that guy's name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, 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 the audience, but it is the thing, man. Don't you think that this thing of wrestling with this invisibility of not being seen, of actually being misseen is part of why we're just a circle well, we respond back. to a lot of the same people. I mean, we both, I mean, you know him, but I don't. We both have Bomani Jones on. And part of the fun of that is him sort of playing all those aspects of being seen versus not being seen and being a public person in plain view and not having people perceive things about you that the black audience gets and and to be have to be the person who is the decoder and the translator and the communicator of all those things simultaneously which is what if you're a person of color in media as often as not you end up doing but Um, yeah bomani being younger than us by a lot he has the ability or he and i've talked about this a lot he has the ability to very consciously decide on his vernacular and to use the vernacular on mic of various different circumstances as, I think, a way to say, you can't define me and I'm not going to be invisible for anyone else. I'm going to be there's visible also the, 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 in the there's way also, I want to be. But having grown up with hip hop where that kind of vernacular is is part of the common currency now, it's not, it doesn't terrify people anymore. <laughs> It's the lingua franca. It's that that's the lingua franca of the Yeah, thing? as Eminem would say, yes, it's the lingua that's franca. That's what I'm saying. Exactly he could- that's on the mom spaghetti label. This is what I want to ask, and is that do you think that part of why you do this thing we talked about, which is try to find what's at the center of what these people do? and deliver it back to them to show them they're seen is in part a reaction to you grappling with this idea of not being seen. Well, I mean, it's, there's a part of that that's in that, but it's also this thing that I realize I have that I'm insanely lucky. And I don't usually believe in luck as an abstract, but you know, this idea to piece in the times about my dad worked two full-time physical labor jobs and, and, you know, um, what I do for a living is what he considered to be something that a child would do to entertain himself. And so that I'm lucky enough to get to do this, um, that I have gone so far 
beyond what anybody I knew growing up would, would growing up would do. I'm still thrilled that I get to do this. And there is, I think I want to communicate in what I do that I derive so much pleasure from it. Yes. And I want to try to find a way to commun- communicate to these people the amount of pleasure they've given me and where it comes from and why. And, 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 uh, and that excitement, just watching your body language changes I'm, when I'm not boring you. It's like, oh, yeah, that right. becomes part of it, too. That you oh, it's wanna- awesome. Well, and I wonder if it's also because, you know, you open your TV series under the influence by saying that movies are the most important cultural signifier of the last century. And I wonder if the fact that you recognize that early uh, on, and um, I'm sure, I imagine you, you or I wonder if you consider things like Mad Men and, and NYPD Blue as part of that conversation or, or separate, but do you think that that, 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 that idea uh, that that they are the most important cultural signifier, and that your set of gifts and the work you've done allows you to communicate about it is part of why you treat it so um, almost almost with this kind of religious you know fervor. Well, I gosh, it's so much to sort of unpack in that. Take your time. Take your time. Because. For me, I mean, movies are so many things, and, and it would be something like seeing one of those AIP beach blanket movies and seeing Stevie Wonder singing over the end credits and hearing it in that kind of sound that wasn't car stereo sound. Well, you know, uh, Stevie I mean, Wonder is not someone who has anything to say. Just to go well, back to what you true. said, just to go back to what true. you said about Rolling Stone. Obviously, he's got nothing to, he's got no perch from which to. Well, thank at- God you recognize that too. There's not just Jan Wetter who thinks yes. like that. And there's stories I could tell you about my time there. But I guess it explains too why they hired Peter Travers, not me, because clearly there's anyway. Um <laughs> But go ahead. Sorry. Bye. Sorry. I couldn't resist because you brought up Stevie and you brought up Jan in past. Uh, in but, past no, so go ahead. but because movies gave us a chance to do all these kinds of things, and also <laughs> so many movies. Um, and this is it's weird that I'm the only person who seems to do this, but I recognize that the way people dress sort of told us something about them in the movies. And it's always been shocking to me. I mean, it's, I just was asked recently, um, I did uh, um, um, a thing with Tom Power, uh, Doc NYC, and he also programs movies for Dr. Toronto, which didn't take my movie, but it's another conversation. Um, but um, he said, well, you know, you seem to know a lot of directors. You're friends with a lot of directors. I went, well, I was the only black guy in a suit at a screening. I was pretty easy to spot. So they would come up and talk to me. And I'm not rude by nature, so that would sometimes things would come out of that. And if it became a friendship, it's fine. But you know, you know the story about when I met first first Quentin Tarantino. Every for the first five years, never I run to Quentin Tarantino somewhere, it would become a huge argument. And Eli Roth would brought together said, you know, it's partially because you guys are just two alpha dogs who basically were claiming claiming conversational territory in these in in, in these skirmishes. Um, but it wasn't like I was always turning out to be friends with these people. It's just that if you do what I do, you look the way I look, you're impossible to miss. And But that's from watching movies and seeing, you know, well, what does it mean to wear a double-breasted peak lapel suit versus a, a, a notch lapel suit? And and it's, it's seeing that somebody like the designer Tom Brown was influenced by seeing the movies, but also at the point where Frank Sinatra... And and Miles Davis and the president of the United States all over the same suit. 
that I mean, then those all that those kinds of observations come from movies, um, the way music was used in movies, yes. and also feeling going back to thing even about Sam Cooke about how the kind of music that I knew from where I was wasn't in new movies for a long time, and and the thrill of seeing something like Shaft, and and then to take this a step further and to get to further digress. Uh, when I got to talk to Willie Too Big Hall at the Memphis Indie Memphis last year, I met him like before ten years ago. But I'd always wanted to, I wanted him to see a documentary to hear what the Isaac Hayes drummer thought of seeing this connection between Shaft and 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 Saturday Night Fever. And he goes, "Oh my God, it's the same key." And he said, "I <laughs> I probably seen Saturday Night Fever like everybody else, and it never occurred to me that that's what they were doing until I saw right. this." And it, I get. I get it. It's some version. This is some version of the thing we recognize when we read Pat Hobby or we read the Yam scene in Invisible Man, which is these thoughts and feelings I've had. I think they're right. I think that these are connections I'm making. I think, and it's so much a part of our identity, your identity, your self-identity, that by sharing these insights and having them hit off of the person and having them, it in a way makes us feel connected scene commute back to that quote at the beginning of you know the the tony morrison quote you chose for your movie right alone but moving toward community and perhaps these rec this stuff moves us toward community right on some level okay, it's just that thing too that re recognizing for me not it's not just that i feel this way about movies but it's kareem abdul jabbar feels this way about movies and tony morrison when i told her i was going to I wanted to do this book. She offered to write an introduction. And we were dinner and she just started talking. I just started grabbing napkins to write things down so I didn't forget any of this stuff. Incredible. And Incredible. and I, nobody wanted them to the book because clearly, A, nobody was interested in the movie on black culture in the film world, and B, I couldn't write it. So why those being well, too many getting possible? You don't even me. you don't even sit through movies you're supposed to review. How are you gonna write a whole book? Why'd you waste time? It's so much easier to do that. <laughs> now, but la okay. Lastly, I mean, there's so much more I want to talk about, and I'm, uh, and I think that this is really the stuff that you explained about allowing, because you, it really doesn't matter. You could have, I'll say this: like the thing is, a lot of film critics can dress white film critics who are in the sort of post geek world can wear fucking Bowie, Rip Bowie T-shirt and whatever, and their status is still accorded them and. I noticed in the documentary the, the 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 way in which style, if you want to present, you have to you have to you you have to kind of demand to not be just uh, swept like let people's eyes go past. They have to notice. They have to be able to grok you. But something actually deeper than that, though. I mean, yes, I'm sure it is. Shallower go. than that. I mean, the same. Which is to say, how do you go to see? How do you go to the movies and oh, and, I love that. and 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 not take that away from them? How do you how do you do that? How do you see that? And, and it's also, too, one of the biggest influences on me, in addition to the people I mentioned, was the old Black Sports Magazine and Brian Gumbel, that example. And to see if that guy could go from that magazine to doing the Today Show, to go from that to NBC Sports to the Today Show, and dress like that and completely be in command. And, and you know, to me, it's that sort of thing, too, in the media about how a Black person is treated versus a white person. I mean... Did anybody show more contempt on a regular basis towards the world in this TV persona than David Letterman? And Brian Gumbel is basically treated as being a black man who was 
Well, but even go right to but go right to sports. Then you could just say comma. Then Howard Cosell did, and uh, right in sports or Jim Gray. I mean, there's so many of these guys who who were like that. And yet, I'm I'm taking two roughly contemporaneous figures on the same network. One of whom is running a show live two hours a day that generates a lot more money, and you would think that the understanding of his impact has got to be greater than the impact of Letterman. This is not even a conversation qualitatively about my feelings about Letterman, but there's stuff there too. But that Letterman was accorded all this status and Brian Gumbel, who was working harder than anybody should work, was still being looked down upon and people were making fun of him. And I thought, well, it just goes to show you, if you're a a, a black man with some sense of, of confidence and a stylish black person, um, and I've, I've had this conversation with so many other people of color about this, that, that, who felt the same way. But why was it that David Letterman is being put up on this pedestal and Brian Gumbel, who was, and this gets back to this thing of invisibility on this program that was the biggest profit center for NBC during that time and was constantly be sort of being derided or looked down upon. And I know of people who were in network news who were horrible human beings, who treated people bad, who had the... And, and we're given the past by the media who must have known about this. So that too is, and that's, but you know, it's even seeing photos of Jacques Derrida and seeing him in a suit. I mean, it's just that you could, or, or seeing gay to This is why Elvis is so Wolf. great. There's this so is why people. Elvis is so great because if you're listening to this and you don't know, I said the word deconstruction 25 minutes ago. And, and so Elvis throws Derrida at us for the six people who are paying attention to that shit to understand the conversation we're having about, you know, to understand. You, in, in the comedy of, world, you call that a callback, don't you? Yeah, you do, but well, <laughs> sort of. And and, and perfectly, in, in perfectly also put in a conversation about semiotics, which is uh, this, right? The way that things, there's a lot of semiotics going on in this conversation because I'd never thought of this until right now. I, I Obviously, we've talked about, and I've thought about the, the way in which Brian Gumbel was talked about, but I hadn't thought about till this second, the fact that nobody ever really said, they just took for granted or kind of just wrote off the intellectual toolkit that Brian Gumbel brought to bear, the nuanced level of thinking, the nimbleness of his mind. Instead, it was just like, what a dick. And um, whereas for sure, people would have been celebrating the fact that this person was intellect. I, I, I lastly, Elvis, I have to, and I, I've, I know you've talked about this some, but I, I haven't directly asked you this. Uh, once only we talked about it once but so you're in college and you're writing about movies there's only the most famous film critic of all time you could say roger ebert or siskel but the truth is the most important single critic because of what she created in the world is pauline kale and i have to know because for someone who has wrestled with these questions of invisibility as you say and of not being seen to have pauline see you and interact with you and encourage you. I have to understand what the fuck that was like for you and what that did to your soul. Well, it's really interesting just because it gets to this question of being recognized and, you know, there's certain kinds of people who've always had a, seemed to have had a hard time with me. And there was um, a film critic in Detroit when I was growing up named Susan Stark, who, when I went to try to get a job as a second stringer that a friend had recommended me for, went out of a way to tell me how unqualified I was and why I had no business doing this. Now, this comes a few months after I met Pauline, who had <laughs> written me this letter, listen, you're trying to go to grad school, you want to get an AFI, whatever you want me to do. After one conversation, Pauline said, whatever I can, I mean, when I met her, it was, and this was about 
making us bet on my we're bet on myself. She was in the days when they sent authors out for book tours. So this would be yes. like the 20th century. She was, this is how long ago this was, she's been sent on a book tour for a collection of her reviews that had been published in the New Yorker. Can you imagine such a thing happening nowadays? I mean, I but have she, the books. I have all the books. On the, I have the 5,001. I, I have all I, the books. Will you listen around? I can show you the, the, the books yes, here. I know. Uh, the signed copies of the books. But um, she was doing a local, uh, she's doing an appearance on, that's how far back this is, a live radio show that had an audience. And I just happened to know the producer. So I thought, I'll go over there just so I can say I met Pauline Kale. And I get there a half hour early. And she's sitting by herself in the lobby. I thought, well, I just got to sit down and start talking to her. So I did. And we just kind of hit it up. We're just talking. And they come to take her away for the interview. And she grabs me by the arm. I'm not on the show. She goes, I know you're not on the show. Just come sit. So she's Uh. sitting there with the host. And I'm sitting next to her. I'm sure he's thinking, why is her driver sitting with her? And and, and this is, by the way, just a conversation we were having before the interview. It wasn't like I was doing anything. And this is also, again, so long ago that the Oscars were on a Monday. And she was in Detroit for the Oscars. Do you want to like go over to my hotel and have some of your friends come by and watch the Oscars? And I knew I couldn't bring my then girlfriend there because it, anyway. So <laughs> I said, no, but if, you know, my, I'd love to interview you because I'm at this point doing volunteer reviews for the public radio station here. And she goes, sure, uh, come by tomorrow morning. Wow. And we just sort of hit it off. And, and, but I don't immediately having this kind of connection. And I assumed this because it was, she was, and she was a pretty generous person, but she would also let you know what she thought in no uncertain terms as soon as she thought it. Um, so I later learned what this meant that she, that we managed to connect in, in this way that is still at that point where I was trying to get work as a film critic. And in the eighties, it was, you had to be a young white guy who was a no tourist. So in other words, a young fogey. And I, I couldn't catch a break. So it's one of the reasons I started to write about television is that nobody's writing about TV in that way. When I first got started writing at The Voice, I thought, well, I can do this and and try to bring the bear some the same kind of judgment you would bring to writing about film. It was an interesting period. Period Miami Vice, seeing Bruce Willis on Moonlighting, seeing Denzel Washington on St. Elsewhere. Yes. Uh, a, a pretty interesting world of TV to write about in those days, you know? And, and so... Still having her like read this stuff, and I would just send her stuff occasionally. I wasn't sending there, people would send her stuff all the time. I just thought, I don't need to do that. And but people would tell her about hearing me on the radio, and I think for a long time that she thought that I was, I should be, I should have a TV or radio job, and no disrespect or anything, but she didn't read enough of my writing. And then when she starts seeing me in the Times. The conversations changed, and suddenly, like, and we talked all the time. But she was suddenly talking to a, a peer, and I have to tell you that. And I know I told you this that when I called her to tell her I got the job, she said, "Oh, honey, it should have been somebody else." And she mentioned the person. I just started laughing and said, Hilarious. "You don't get to say that to me on Hilarious. what's probably going to be the most important day of my career." She goes, "Oh, honey, you're right." And then when she called me with that piece about, I wrote the piece about my dad for the Times Sunday Magazine. She called to say. You've got, and it was a call. I remember this at six a.m. Uh, and so it was in Styles at the time, so it wasn't even in the Sunday Magazine. So a section I thought she would never read, and it came. I came to realize a what the times meant, and b that she was reading me on a regular basis. And she called and said, "You've got to make them submit this for the Pulitzer. This is the best piece I've ever read in the New York Times." 
but Adam Moss didn't like me, so it wasn't submitted. And I said, well, Pauline, if you remember, like a few months ago, you said I wasn't the person for the job. She just said, no, I was wrong. <laughs> and I, yeah, I mean, but she, she saw you eventually. She saw you. She saw you different ways. She saw you as a person. And then she, she saw you. She always saw me. And, you know, <clears throat> and you could talk to her about music or theater or boxing. I mean, it was, it was incredible to have that. And, and I realized one of the things that, that probably links all of us is this, this kind of voracious curiosity, not appetite, but voracious curiosity about why people do things the way they do them. And, and and when people say stuff to me, like, don't you despair for the state of movies? I said, no, there are more people making different kinds of movies than ever before. Um, um, it's, 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 it's too many to see now. It's hard to keep up and it's hard to watch TV now and read and, 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 and go to theater, which I don't get to do nearly as much because I'm not there as much as I like to be. Um, but you could talk to Pauline about all of these things. And, and that, that you, you got past the point of feeling like you were being seen to feeling like you were talking to somebody who was like you. I mean, it goes from being seen to feeling like what you brought up before, being part of a community. Yeah, that we're a community. And that is the best thing. And it's a great place to, to leave on because, you know, man, I'm so glad that I asked Doug to introduce us. And um, Me too. I so value and treasure you. And I know that I wouldn't do this show. I wouldn't have done this show if it weren't for the way you did yours. And um, It's very kind of you to say. Well, I know it's not true, but it's incredibly yeah, kind of you to okay, say. But, yeah, I, but means- like these things, you know I said it to you at the beginning. I mean, you know I did say that to you when I started. So it's not like something I'm saying now. I said it all I'm those not, years I'm ago. I'm not disagreeing with the level of your delusion. I'm just thanking That's you for, fine. for being so kind about it. That's fine. And, um, and I have to next- say before we, go, before we go any further, the last episode of Billions and the conversation we had about it on the show was edited. I mean, it's funny because... Going back to that first episode, it's you you landed all of that so beautifully. Right down to that 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 the 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 moments of humanity in Acts that may that were misleading about who and what he was, but that there was I think that the show is about fundamentally that even the worst of us can find people to connect with. And he was able to do that with the guy who gave him his favorite pizza we see in that in that pilot. And finally, with with Taylor and and with Wendy, and it's, it goes from being, and and for me, the heartbreak of that show is that finally he's he's still surrounded by a bunch of white guys wearing Patagonia. I mean, that was finally That's the, the most tragedy. And of the as show. you can, with only Tuck, be, yeah, with just Ben Kim and Tuck being people of color, but it's all men. I'm so glad you caught that. Everything in that, I'll say, is Dave and I really worked as hard as we could possibly work. Oh, God, of course you did, but I'm just saying, I, I'm trying but I'm to saying, thank you. you. Let, thank let, you. Let me give you flowers for your work. Let me say to you that, uh, no, I'm bringing here to that you because there's so yeah. much stuff that's planted in that. And I just told you, even when I saw it, but it was such a fully formed piece of writing. And that's, you were talking about the impact of movies. That's the impact of movies on television, where a great movie is as soon as my walks in, you know who and what they are based on what they're wearing, based on how they walk into the room, based on where they sit based on the first two lines that they say and the way people are regarding them. That's all film stuff. And and the, to bring that level of, of achievement to that show season after season, and it really is a show about solipsism and shifting loyalties based on who you think can help you. <laughs> well, you know, you're right, and you're right about the fact that uh, even if it makes someone feel viscerally good when they go and think about it, they should really think about who Axe is at that moment, what he's saying, and who he's surrounded by. But Elvis, your determination to not make the mistake that other people have made with you 
uh, and to actually not misread, but to do the work to correctly read what is intended is a real gift that you give. Next time we do this, we're going to talk about, because there's all sorts of things I've always wanted to ask you, but it's easier with a microphone. Your memory is insane. Your ability to synthesize and process information. I've always wanted to uh, ask about that. And I actually want to do a whole hour someday on do the right thing, because I think that it's, and I want to put a group together because to me it is, and it's, I, I, I understood what your movie was about, but in a way, when I watch your movie, where I land is, in the same way that these things were marginalized only to be subsumed or to be joined. I was on someone's uh, podcast the other day, uh, it's coming out to Tyler Cowen, who was a brilliant, brilliant, oh, brilliant man. Oh, great, I great, love yeah, Tyler, yeah. brilliant. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we did, but, uh, but I said, I thought the great movie of the last century, the most mis the most underrated film is Do the Right Thing. And- We've had this, we've had this conversation before, I know that we have. And, and it gets to so many things, because you know, the reason I made that movie, my movie from 68 to 78, yes. is that, you know, Spike is, you know, the, that single black figure. I mean, there got to be two in the movies in the 80s, Spike Lee and Eddie Murphy. And, you know, I've had this conversation with so many people, even with Quentin. And, and so the fact is that the movie business is so institutionally opposed to, <laughs> to anybody other than white men. Do you think that Spike Lee is the only black talent in, in the movie business too. But what's in interesting, but what's interesting, though, of course, not, and, and then Singleton, you know, um, had the moment of making, you know, this obviously staggeringly great film that you point out what its antecedents were. Well, Fish does in your movie. Fishburne points it out, but you showcase it. But that's true that, of course, he's not. But it's also true that if there were many more black filmmakers who were able to make movies, people wouldn't look at Spike as merely the, the black filmmaker and they would understand. Because I, I sometimes say to people, Elvis, when they ask my biggest influences and I talk about Spike's dialogue, as like, honestly, as big an influence, it's the, there are five influences and Spike's dialogue is one of them. And people always go, really, Spike? And it's like, do you not watch and listen to those movies? That is the how do you most- not watch, How do you not watch She's Gotta Have It and hear those guys talk and not hear rounders? <laughs> right. It's the biggest. It is one of the biggest. It's Mamet is. Yes, David Mamet. But Spike Lee, for fuck's sake. And I, I it's it's undoubt. It's like there's just no doubt about it. And yet people can't see it. And for me, watching your movie helped explain why what willfully is going on, even though it's not about Spike Lee. It explains why. Although, yes, Spike is wealthier than any of uh, Spike is as successful as someone needs to be. And yet underrated, undervalued. Uh, people don't understand the work. And so watch uh, Elvis's film, everybody. I, I, it is magnificent. Is that black enough for you? Also, there are episodes of Under the Influence that are available. You can find them. They're worth it. He talks uh -huh. to great filmmakers. Yeah, you can find them like- um, You know, when TCM talked about hiring a, a black person recently, they said the first black person to work regularly at TCM. And I had friends who wrote to me and said, weren't you that person? What about I mean, the show they made yes. of yours? And then uh, the treatment- <laughs> And um, whatever movie or book you uh, do next. Elvis Mitchell, thanks for being here. Folks, you can find Elvis in all those places. And he does live appearances sometimes where he interviews people and other things. And uh, uh, he's a professor also. First of all, thank you for, for being such a great friend and for allowing me to come on and talk. I mean, I was very nervous about doing this because I'd listened to the show. And, and it's, I was afraid we wouldn't have that moment where the moment where I hear all the gears engaged for you. And so it's thrilling to get no, to you. You got this. it. Thank all you. the gears were engaged. Elvis Mitchell, thanks a lot, everybody. Uh, you can find me at the moment, bk at gmail.com, and we will see you next time. <laughs>